Hello and welcome to Season 1 of the StoryFest podcast. StoryFest is a biennial celebration of the art of storytelling held right here on Murramurran country in the Milton Mollymock Ulladulla region on the beautiful New South Wales south coast. The episode you are about to listen to was recorded in June at StoryFest 2019. You can learn more about StoryFest at our website, storyfest.org.au, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter. Every month features some terrific book recommendations, author interviews and giveaways. As a bonus, subscribers get first dibs on special offers and early bird access to tickets for all of our events. We'd love to see you at future festivals. Before we begin, we'd like to thank the Ulladulla High School Didgeridoo Group for providing the wonderful musical intro to this podcast. Now grab a cuppa or put on your walking shoes and enjoy this episode from StoryFest 2019. Ladies and gentlemen, I've got a confession to make. I'm a historian. Even more embarrassingly, I'm an Australian historian. A member of a profession the Australian public regards as sitting somewhere between used car salesman and rat catcher. Like most Australians, I was bored witless by Australian history at school. All I can remember from the classroom is Captain Cook, uh, sheep, uh, explorers leaving little dotted lines on maps, uh, sheep, uh, convicts, gold, sheep, rum, sheep and sheep. Uh, while my schoolmates and I found the Captain Cook story to be a kiddie version of Prozac, others recognised it for the wonderful tale that it is. Gene Roddenberry based Star Trek on Cook's endeavour voyage to Australia. Captain James Cook became Captain James Kirk. The HMS Endeavour became the USS Enterprise, both meaning to try or aspire. Joseph Banks, the Endeavour's botanist, morphed into Mr Spock. And Star Trek's catchphrase, to boldly go where no man has gone before, was lifted from Cook's journal entry, ambition leads me not only farther than any other man has been before me, but as far as I think it possible for man to go. Roddenberry wasn't the only American to recognise Australia as a source of great stories. Take this quote. Australian history is almost always picturesque. Indeed, it is so curious and strange that it is itself the chiefest novelty the country has to offer, and so pushes the other novelties into second and third place. It does not read like history, but like the most beautiful lies, and all of a fresh new sort, no moldy old stale ones. It is full of surprises and adventures and incongruities and contradictions and incredibilities, but they are all true. They all happened. The same author wrote, truth is stranger than fiction, but it is because fiction is obliged to stick to possibilities. Truth isn't. These are the words of the greatest American writer and satirist of the 19th century, Mark Twain, penned in his 1897 travelogue, Following the Equator. Now, Twain was a prototype Bill Bryson, who toured the world whenever he ran low on cash. He'd charged the locals an absolute fortune to hear him speak, and then write incredibly bitchy things about them. <laughs> he was particularly fond of Australians, despite regarding them as toadies of Imperial Britain. Indeed, Australians' love of Britain was one of the things that led them to belittle their own history. 
their backs bent under the weight of the cultural cringe. They believed that a proper history requires great battles and grand castles littered with the statues of inbred monarchs. In short, a British history. But Australia has over 60,000 years of its own fascinating and unique history. We are a nation that sprang from a colony of pickpocket sheep thieves and Irishmen, dumped at the arse end of the world with a seven to one male to female ratio and a monetary policy that involved having no money, where rum became the liquid currency of choice. It was Australia's unique and frequently absurd history that made me want to write GERT, available in all good bookstores and at the CWA for signing after this speech. GERT's style was informed by both Twain and Bryson, as well as that, as well as that of Australia's first great larrikin writer, the 19th century Irish-Australian journalist Edmund Finn, aka Gary Owen, who in the Chronicles of Early Melbourne wrote that the founders of the southern city were five men, a woman, and the woman's cat, pretty much your average Fitzroy sharehouse. <laughs> These writers all demonstrate that history can thrive outside the walls of dusty academe. Gert and the sequel, True Gert, also available in the CDRW bookshop for signing after the speech, um, are narrative histories of Australia. But they also satirise Australian identity. Um, and that's what I'm interested in. Who are we as a people and how did we become the way we are. I'm often asked why I called my first book Gert. And that word seems archaic now, but it meant something profound when Advance Australia Fair was written by Peter Dodds McCormick in 1878. Our maritime Gertitude was a major theme in the calls for an independent Australian state. Sir Henry Parks was a great statesman and a poet of outstanding mediocrity. The father of Federation wrote, God girdled our majestic isle with seas far-reaching east and west, that man might live beneath this smile in peace and freedom ever blessed. Alfred Deakin, the Prime Minister, in his famous speech in support of Federation wrote, For God has made her one complete she lies within the unbroken circle of the skies, and round her indivisible the sea breaks on her single shore. Now, Deacon wasn't going to let Tasmania get in the way of a good speech, but the point that he was making was that we were cut off from the rest of the world by the oceans that surrounded us, and that because we were cut off, we needed to forge our own path and we needed to be independent and to go it alone. So the fact that we were girt by sea was a major factor in the arguments for our political independence from Britain. Australia is more girt by sea than any other nation. It has played a critical role in forging our national identity. If it wasn't for the warm currents of the Timor Sea, other people would have bumped into our first Australians tens of thousands of years ago um, and they, they wouldn't have been able to preserve their culture for so long. Uh, it was chosen as a place to place convicts because the sea stopped them walking back to civilisation. And that was seen as a big factor. Also, in terms of the white Australia policy, the fact that we were cut off from the rest of the world forced us to turn... Well, didn't force us, we chose to turn inwards and look 
at ourselves as a little white microcosm separated from all of the things that were going on in Asia. A very, very backward and retrograde step, but again, the fact that we were cut off from Asia by the sea led to that. Now, that's the academic argument. The real reason that I chose to call my book Gert is it's a bloody ridiculous word that school kids hate and jars on the modern ear. And it sums up the wonderful absurdity of our history. And it's enabled me to have a book depicting a pained-looking Governor Philip standing in the ocean being crapped on by a seagull. And as a writer, that's all you can want from a book. Um, I'm very grateful to Goethe and to Advance Australia Fair, and I probably wouldn't have had a literary career without it. We Australians are a democratic bunch, and we actually got to vote on our national anthem in a 1977 plebiscite, although Advance Australia Fair didn't become our official anthem until 1984. Now, I maintain that Advance Australia Fair is a far more suitable anthem than the previous anthem and plebiscite option, God Save the Queen. It's also better than the downright creepy Song of Australia, penned by a South Australian and the favoured choice of South Australians in the plebiscite. It contains lyrics like witching harmonies, worshipping at Mammon's shrine, deep in the dark unfathomed mine, and no shackled slave can breathe the air, which is exactly what I'd expect from the people who gave us Snowtown and Humphrey B. Bear. <laughs> and for those of you who are fans of waltzing Matilda and sing it at the rugby, and waltzing Matilda would romp it in if a plebiscite were held today, I have this to say. Waltzing Matilda is a song about a sheep-stealing hobo who drowns himself. Is this really the image of Australia that we wish to project to the rest of the world? Crazy talk. So Advanced Australia Fair and Gerd it is. Although I acknowledge that the current anthem's lifespan is limited, as the move to adopt a national anthem that acknowledges Australia's Indigenous past is gathering momentum. There were two stories that really made me want to bite about Australian history. And the first is that of Matthew Flinders. Um, there are more statues of Matthew Flinders in Australia than of any other man. And there are more statues of his cat Trim than of any other cat. So they are a very impressive man and animal companion double sailing act. Matthew Flinders was the person who determined that Tasmania was an island, separated from the mainland for which the rest of us are, remain terribly grateful. He was the first person to circumnavigate the continent, proving that indeed New Holland and New South Wales were part of the same joint. And in 1804, he was the first person to propose that this continent be named Australia. Um, I always thought it was a bit sus that Matthew Flinders, when he comes down to Australia, the first thing he does is he goes sailing with his very good sailing buddy, George Bass, in a little nine-foot boat, the Tom Thumb. And they kept on re-exploring Botany Bay. Every weekend, they'd pop out to Botany Bay, the first bit of uh, the East Coast had been explored and explored a little bit more. And I thought, ah, that's an interesting relationship, I thought. Um, in, 18, in 1998, a letter was discovered from Flinders to Bass. Uh, it was written in 1802. It's about 12 pages. It's at the State Library. And it contains this line from Flinders to Bass. There was a time when I was so completely wrapped up in you that no conversation but yours could give me any degree of pleasure. 
Your footsteps on the quarterdeck over my head took me from my book and brought me upon deck to walk with you. And yet it is not clear to me that I love you entirely. At least my affection for Wales reaches farther into my heart. I would take him into the same skin as me. That is a beautiful, beautiful piece of writing that as a writer I wish that I could write that tenderly and sensitively. Unfortunately, that tender and sensitive letter was opened and read by the new Mrs Bass, who did not share my sentiments. And she scrawled an alarmed note on the, uh, on the covering of the letter. This George is written by a man that bears a bad character. No one has seen this letter, but I could tell you many things that make me dislike him. Unfortunately, George had gone off sailing and disappeared off the coast of South America, never to be seen again. Um, so the newly married Mrs Bass was left with this, this letter from Matthew Flinders. And I tell this story in a section of Gert, sensitively titled Bass Strait Question Mark. Um, <laughs> now, I was amazed that this letter, this important document in Australian history, had not excited more comment and is not more widely known. Was it romantic love or was it something more? And there were incredible difficulties even in, 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 in the Royal Navy of coming out of jo uh, Davy Jones's locker. It was, it was hard being a gay Georgian. And we know that from the experience of Lord Castle Ray. Australia has so many things named Castle Ray after Lord Castle Ray, who was Secretary of State for War in the Colonies and was the leader of the Tory faction in the House of Lords after that. And in the early 1820s, Lord Castle Ray goes and visits uh, George uh, IV and he says, Your Highness, I have been accused of the same crime as the Bishop of Cloger. And the Bishop of Cloger... Uh, two weeks before, had been found pants down in the back room of a Westminster Inn with a Grenadier Guardsman. And uh, George said to Castlereagh, My dear Castlereagh, don't worry about it. Go and consult a physician. Uh, Castlereagh didn't do that. Castlereagh went back to his own vast estate, sat down at his desk and slit his own throat with his letter opener. And when his funeral procession passed through the streets of London, Londoners came out to hurl cobblestones, cats, rotten vegetables and filth um, because rumours of his homosexuality had, had by this time spread. Lord Byron penned the following touching obituary to Lord Castlereagh. Posterity will never survey a finer grave than this. Here lie the bones of Castlereagh, stop traveller and piss. So you can see at this time in our history, people who lived an unconventional life at the time had great difficulties. The second story that made me want to write about Australian history is that of the Rum Rebellion, where Governor Bly is deposed in the most unusual coup in the 20th anniversary of settlement. You have soldiers marching on Government House. None of them are carrying weapons. They are playing flutes and drums and they're singing. It's a very jolly affair. The only armed resistance to Australia's only military coup comes in the form of Bly's daughter, Mary Putland, who stands at the gates of Government House and assaults the incoming soldiers with her parasol. So, the US has the midnight ride of Paul Revere and the Declaration of Independence. The French have a king and queen going to the guillotine and their blood running through the streets. Russia has millions purged and sent to Siberia. 
and we have a bit of a sing-along and a crazy chick with a small paper umbrella. <laughs> and I think that that says something about who we are as a people and I think that is bloody wonderful. As you know, New South Wales was founded as a co convict colony in 1788. At the time, there were over 208 capital crimes that could see you having a date with the, uh, the hangman. You could be executed for stealing a rabbit from its warren, uh, interfering with a fish pond, having a blackened face, which was not good for Jamaicans, chimney sweeps and politically incorrect minstrels, and being in the company of gypsies for one month. It was all right if you hang out with the gypsies for three weeks and five days, but spend the extra weekend with the gypsies and by God, you were in trouble. Of the 759 convicts aboard the First Fleet, 28 had committed no crime other than handkerchief theft. Another 78 had stolen goods, including handkerchiefs, and a further 225 had stolen other cloth goods or handkerchief precursors. The Jamaican Thomas Chaddick was transported for vandalising 12 cucumber plants, while Irish woman Mary McLaughlin was sent here for the crime of felony of sock. I've never been able to work out whether she couldn't count, had only one leg, or was just Irish. And I'm allowed to make Irish jokes because I am of proud Irish descent, and also they are the gift that keeps on giving as a humorous history writer. The first Irish convicts were not sent to Sydney in New South Wales. They were sent to Sydney in Nova Scotia. And you can imagine them being told, oh, well, pack your limited belongings for Sydney. Oh, well, you know it. At least it'll be warm there. We can pack light. Uh, no. Um, whilst Arthur Phillip had only 2% mortality rate on the first fleet, over 30% of the Irish convicts sent on the much shorter journey to, to Sydney and Nova Scotia died, including five who died of exposure whilst being unloaded from the boats. The first convicts sent to Australia in 1792 were sent by Sir Henry Brown Hayes, the Sheriff of Cork, and they came on a ship called the Queen. The first thing that they did, 21 of them have escaped, because they believed that China lay 150 miles to the north of Sydney and that they could walk to freedom by walking to China. And the leader drew an arrow on a piece of paper. And they all followed him and he set off through the bush. In 79, and the Irish were always escaping. You've got to give this to, uh, to us Irish folk. We're not going to take it lying down. We're going to rebel. We're going to sing songs. We're going to get drunk. And by God, we're going to escape. In 1798, Governor Hunter becomes aware of a planned mass Irish convict breakout. And he is so concerned from the story of the Queen where the, 150, where the 21 who escaped got as far as Palm Beach effectively in Sydney. They made it an impressive 26 miles on their overland walk to China. Uh, one of them died of starvation. One of them was speared to death. Others ate poisonous berries. And they came back nude and generally not very healthy. So Hunter, when he hears about this Irish breakout, is concerned for their well-being. And he actually says to the ringleaders, look, I hear you're planning on escaping. When you feel like going, can you please let me know and we'll arrange to give you an escort and some food and a guide. And so began the only state-sponsored prison breakout <laughs> in world history where the leaders went up and said, oh, yes, yes, we'd like to escape now. And Hunter gave them provisions and a guide um, and they believed that a secret white empire lay about 300 
kilometres to the south of Sydney, just south of Goulburn, actually, and they all marched off in that general direction and didn't find anything and went back to Sydney. Sir Henry Brown Hayes, who was sent the first convicts here, was actually sent out as a convict himself, the typically Irish crime of abducting a maiden that be an inheritor, that is kidnapping an heiress for her money. And there were political reasons why that was a very popular crime amongst the aristocracy in Ireland. He swore that he would never shave his upper lip whilst he remained a convict and soon had the longest moustache in the colony, which he grew for 11 years before he was allowed home. He didn't have to do boring convicty things because he was a nobleman and he builds Vaucluse House in Sydney. Um, and Hayes is absolutely terrified of snakes. Terrified. And he believes that he has a solution to the snake problem at Vaucluse House. He imports 500 tonnes of Irish turf at great expense from Ireland, has it all rolled out and only laid by Irish Catholic turf layers because he believes that the turf from the land trodden by St Patrick will repel the snakes of Australia. It didn't and at vast expense... He bought a bit of Irish soil out here and, God, the snakes loved it. Um, Australia's first convicts were hardly master criminals and British Australia's beginnings did not seem auspicious. Yet within the span of a single human life, the eastern colonies of Victoria and New South Wales had the highest standard of living of anywhere in the world. And this can't just be put down to gold, sheep and stealing the land of the first Australians, but also to the vigorous competition between the Australian colonies. My second book, True Good, available in all good bookstores, tells the story of the development of the Australian colonies and the tension between them as they vied for power in the new southern world they were creating. The colonies tried new things that had never been done before in Britain and they copied each other's successes and sometimes each other's failures. And when you think of Australian failures, all of you who went to high school in my time or before will have learned about railway gauges, which seem like the most boring things to talk about in history, but they're incredibly important. The different colonies each adopted train tracks of a different width. South Australia, for some reason, had four different widths of train track um, in the colony. That meant that whenever you were catching a train from Sydney to Melbourne, you had to get off the border, all of your luggage had to be taken off, all had to be loaded, uh, you know, you'd get off at Albury. The only reason you'd stop at Albury or Wodonga was that you had to and would get loaded up onto the, the train on the Victorian side and off you'd go. When Twain visited in 1895, he wrote, think of the paralysis of intellect that gave that idea birth. <laughs> it took until 1995 for you to be able to catch a train from Melbourne to Adelaide without getting off at the border under the Keating government. That's how long that appalling policy lasted, absolutely crippling trade between the colonies. The other factor that contributed to Australia's rise as an economic superpower was the unlocking of the human capital of people who would never have been given the opportunity to succeed under Britain's entrenched class system. Mary Reby, the po-faced grandmother on our $20 note, is the poster girl of Australian opportunity. She'd eloped with another girl at the age of 13, dressed as a boy, assumed the name James Burrow, stolen a horse and was sentenced to death before the sentence was commuted to transportation to New South Wales. 
Now James went through the courts and spent months in a crowded cell before anyone realised that he was a she. James slash Mary would have been nothing more than an interesting cross-dressing footnote in British history. But in Australia, she was able to amass a vast ceiling, pastoral, hotel, shipping and real estate empire, becoming one of the colony's richest residents, a confidant of Governor Lachlan Macquarie and a much-admired philanthropist. We should be proud of our Marys and revel in their stories. Yet until the 1980s, most Australian families kept their convict skeletons in the closet. So did our politicians. Indeed, there were so many politicians terrified of being discovered to be of convict descent that they attempted to remove official records from government registries. So if you're trying to research a, a, a politician with a dodgy family history, you will find that a lot of those records that were once there are there no longer. The 1956 Tasmanian government publication, A Century of Responsible Government in Tasmania, which is perhaps something of an eximeron, coyly referred to Mary Reby as a colourful personality of early Sydney. Um, that's because her, her grandson was the Premier of Tasmania. And so she's just a colourful personality rather than a cross-dressing lesbian, horse-thieving convict girl. This desire to rinse the convict stain from the moral fabric of our nation caused many Australians to reimagine their origins, replacing the ancestral handkerchief fetishist with a down-on-his-luck nobleman seeking to make good in the new world. And this desire for reinvention was another factor in the wishful forgetting of much of our history. Now, reinvention on a national scale demands new myths. And so Australians embraced the myth of the bush, characterising themselves as carefree drovers, hard-working shearers and stoic women who kept the homestead tidy and the swag warm. And this was despite the fact that in the late 19th century, Australians were one of the most urbanised people on earth and nearly all of them lived on the coast, their backs to the bush. The bush myth coalesced most strongly around bushrangers. And while we sought to deny our criminal origins, we paradoxically worshipped these highwaymen in search of a highway. These noble champions of the Aussie everyman who fought injustice by robbing and shooting complete strangers. Australians still carrying their convict underdog legacy loved bushrangers because they stood up to authority and made the police, magistrates and rich folk look stupid. Now, bushrangers feature heavily in Truegate, available in all good bookstores and CWI store, which is a frontier history of the wild south, and it's got probably my favourite bushranger on the cover, Captain Moonlight, Australia's most notorious LGBTI bushranger. And for those of you who don't know the Moonlight story, it is absolutely beautiful. Um, it involves him uh, coming to Australia originally as an Anglican lay preacher where he chats up a good-looking 17-year-old blonde and they embark on a life of cattle theft together. Uh, but he is... Nobody believes that the Sunday school teacher could be stealing cattle despite the fact that one of his Sunday school congregation testified against him. So he got off. But as the church normally does in these situations, they quietly moved him to another parish. Uh, in that other parish, he again befriends a 17-year-old blonde Danish uh, junior bank manager. And he embarks on an audacious theft of all of the gold from this bank in this gold mining town. He comes in wearing a black crepe mask, black dress, black big black hat, and writes a letter 
Julius William Brune, the name of the boy, had nothing to do with this daring outrage. It was I, Captain Moonlight, M-O-O-N-L-I-T-E. And he misspelt Moonlight because he was an educated churchman and nobody would think that an educated man would not be able to spell Moonlight. Um, of course, the poor old bank manager is convicted. He hotfoots it to New South Wales where he lives off the proceeds. He buys a yacht, uh, a groom, uh, new weapons, fancy clothes... And then he buys a second yacht because one yacht is never enough uh, before he is interned in the paramatic lunatic asylum uh, for a dodgy checks uh, involved in the purchase of the second yacht. When he's released, he's extradited to Victoria for his role in the gold theft. In jail, he falls in love with uh, uh, a man um, uh, uh, who, who referred to as his dearest Jim, James Nesbitt. And they live together after he's released, after 10 years, um, and he can't get a job because every time he tries to get a job, the police say, that is moonlight, you can't employ him. So he works standing in parks, talking about the need for prison reform with James beside him. They can't make a living in, in Melbourne, so they take some sort of street kids from Melbourne and decide to move into New South Wales in search for work. And there, near Gundagai, in desperate, they hold up Wantabadgeri Station with guns and he starts shooting horses and making strange speeches about being moonlight. Um, and there's a big shootout with police and James Nesbitt, his lover, is shot in the head. Moonlight throws down his gun, cradles Moonlight, crying, um, and he writes over 400 pages of letters from Darlinghurst Jail because Nesbitt is buried in an unmarked grave in Gundagai and all that he is asking for, Moonlight, is to be reunited with James in death. So 400 pages of letters asking to be buried with James. He writes, you know, when he passed from this world, life lost its meaning and death its sting. When I think of my dear James, I am nearly driven mad. And he goes to the gallows wearing a, a necklace uh, with a ring made from Nesbitt's hair. Um, of course, when he's hanged, he's buried in Rookwood Cemetery in an unmarked grave. But the great story is that I think in 1997, two women from the Country Women's Association at Gundagai mounted the only successful campaign by a non-relative of a deceased person to have the body disinterred and carried in state down to Gundagai and buried beside James Nesbitt, which is a beautiful story. A beautiful story. Good on the, good on the CWA. Good on the CWA. The interesting bit of that story when the Sydney journalist suggested to the two women from Gundagai, well, that's wonderful that you've reunited these long-lost lovers. They said, oh, really? Oh, no, no, they were just good friends. <laughs> um, and you can go and... You're a Gundagai bloke, aren't you? Yeah. Yes, we've got a Gundagai man here in the front row. Um, um, other, other bush rangers that I love in Tasmania in particular, Alexander Pierce, the famous cannibal bush ranger who escapes for the first time with six companions from the island off the west coast of Tasmania, uh, Sarah Island, and walks all the way across, the first person, first white person to walk across Tasmania. He turns up by himself, fit, fit and healthy with a, you know, sleek coat. And they say, where are your companions? And he said, oh, I ate them. And the authorities didn't believe him. They sent him back to the island and he escapes again with a 18-year-old bloke, Thomas Bottenham, who served both as companion and takeaway for his second escape. And this time he's found with bits of this other escapee, his flesh in his pockets. 
when he goes to the gallows, he's treated like a rock star. Women are touching him and fainting. People are screaming and clapping because he was a celebrity. He was a bushranger and, you know, a bushranger who ate people was considered pretty, pretty cool. His last words as he was hanged were, man's flesh is delicious. It tastes far better than fish or pork. And, um, and we loved him. Michael Howe, the hugely popular literary bushranger, was, basically ran all of Tasmania outside of Hobart and was known as the Lieutenant Governor of the Woods. He kept this beautiful diary that he wrote on kangaroo skin with kangaroo blood. Um, Tasmanian people loved him. Kangaroos didn't like him quite as much. Uh, and he writes of his dreams and all of the seeds he wants to collect for his little garden. Um, but he was also incredibly cruel, but not as cruel as Charles Routley, who murdered seven people, was finally caught after murdering uh, uh, another villain called Pretty Boy, who he sewed. But before I tell you about that, Routley was missing half of his face and a, and a hand. He had a hook for a hand, scary-looking bloke in a dark alley, and he sews Pretty Boy into a bullock skin and roasts him alive over a fire. Um, and that's a horrible story, but all I thought when I read it was how can a guy with a hook for a hand thread a bloody needle? So, uh, of course, you've got bold Jack Donahoe, the wild colonial boy, uh, whose body lay in state up in Sydney. Major Thomas Mitchell draws this beautiful sketch saying, with a poem by Byron saying how good-looking he was. They let a pipe maker interview the corpse who took plaster casts of the fatal bullet wound in the temple that killed the wild colonial boy, um, which he then took out onto the streets and sold novelty smoking pipes made with the bowl in the shape of the fatal bullet hole in, in the temple of the wild colonial boy, um, which is pretty grim. Uh, not so grim as Mad Dan Morgan, who, after he was killed, had his scrotum removed and tanned and was used as a tobacco pouch. So with uh, the wild colonial boy and Mad Dan Morgan, you could collect the whole bushranger smoking set. Um, but the love Australians held for these mad, bad and dangerous-to-know brigands of the bush paled it into comparison to the love they held for Ned Kelly, a magnificently bearded, poor, horse-thieving, police-murdering terrorist with a penchant for cast-iron fetish wear. We made the first feature film in the world in 1906. And we made it about a guy who wanted to derail a train full of police and shoot any survivors. An image of the helmeted Kelly, somewhat incongruously waving a cricket bat, remains the logo of Victoria's cricket team, you guessed it, the Bushrangers. We tell our children they shouldn't venerate sportsmen who get drunk, chat up dogs or urinate into their own mouths, but it's okay to honour a cop killer in a metal gimp suit. I don't understand it. I don't love bushrangers as avatars of Aussie anti-authoritarianism, but as demonstrators of down-under diversity, because bushranging was an equal opportunity profession. Women like Black Mary and Mary Ward managed to break through the eucalypt ceiling. Coffee was Aboriginal, Sam Poo was Chinese, Robert Cottrell was known as Blue Cap for the blue visor he wore to protect his eyes as he suffered from profound visual degeneration. We have a blind bushranger in Australia who spends his time... He was a really crap bushranger and was caught pretty quick. Uh, mad Dan Morgan was mad. Johnny Gilbert liked to in, slip into stockings in a frock. 
And Edward Davis, better known as Teddy the Jew Boy, led the Jew Boy Gang, a gang of Jewish bushrangers, in terrorising the Hunter Valley between 1839 and 1841, except on Saturdays. Um, and I know that to be true because I actually researched all of the newspaper reports to see if he was active on the Sabbath. And thank God he was not. Um, the other principal beneficiaries of Australian bush mythmaking were our explorers. And they were lauded for expanding the Australian frontier into the blank regions of the Aberdeen Atlas and opening up new opportunities for graziers, wheat farmers and miners. Many of our explorers, who also feature prominently in Trugurt, despite doing what we at school were told were great things and what Aboriginal people thought were pretty shitty things, were actually pretty crap at exploring. Human Hovel, who started off actually just, just across the range up there in 1824, decided that they would walk pretty much from just south of Sydney uh, uh, to the south coast. Um, they were the first explorers in Australia to use an ox cart and they were also the first explorers in Australia to use a baby's pram. Hovel pushed. And he pushed this baby's pram because a primitive odometer had been rigged to its front wheel. And this was used to measure how far that they had travelled. But the odometer broke along the way and despite the fact he's pushing this pram, they were a couple of hundred K out with their calculations as to where they'd ended up. They thought they were in Western Port near near Phillip Island and all those bloody irritating squawking fairy penguins. They were, uh, they, they were actually down near Geelong and they recommend the settlement of this great area and when this new convict colony is set up near Phillip Island, it's sandy, there's the squawking penguins, bird shit everywhere, no fresh water, poor timber and if the pram wheel had been operating correctly, the authorities would have sent people to settle Port Phillip Bay, the Melbourne and Geelong areas, 10 years earlier than occurred. And if that had happened, Australian history would have been very, very different because it was the settlement of Melbourne in 1835 that led to the British Empire saying, we are now going to allow you to pretty much settle anywhere you like on the continent. We're no longer going to try and keep you constrained within a close area around Sydney. Open slather and more Aboriginal land was alienated in three years than the entire 47 years of settlement before that. So had uh, uh, Port Phillip been settled earlier, had the pram not broken, Australian history would be very different. Um, and that's what I like, these little turning points in our history. What would things have been like if something hadn't have gone wrong? Human hovel hated each other's guts. I refer to them as being like... John and Paul after Yoko moved in. They squabbled all the time. They had a fight over the expedition frying pan and the frying pan broke. Hovel decided he was going to storm off in a huff and cut their tent in half and said, this is my half of the tent, marched off with it. On the way back to Sydney, they'd go to sleep, look at each other and when thinking the other one was asleep, get up and try and run back to Sydney to tell the governor of all this fertile land they'd get so they could get at the glory. They hated each other's guts. Um... Other strange transport, Charles Sturt, if you wanted to explore a river, Sturt was your man. Uh, he knew all about waterways. He knew so much about rivers that he wanted the entire centre of Australia to be filled by a vast inland sea, fed by mighty rivers. So in the 1840s, he drags a whale boat out into the desert in his expedition. For hundreds of kilometres through rolling dunes and tough desert stones, he drags this boat. It's so hot, the expedition dog blisters, feet, 
the mercury comes out of the thermometer. All of the, the lead drops out of their lead pencils and still Sturt is dragging this bloody boat through the desert. That boat is still out there somewhere because when Sturt didn't find his inland sea, after getting pretty close to the centre of Australia, he thought, bugger it, let's go home. Fucking boat can stay out there. Uh, which it did. Um, while Charles Sturt was a literist when it came to ships of the desert, John Horrocks was more metaphorical. When he became the first Australian explorer to use a camel, in 1846. This was the only camel in Australia at the time, the only survivor of a circus. Its name was Harry. Camels at the best of time are the most miserable bloody bastards you can imagine. They spit, they fart, they make this horrible sound. They're violent, they never go in the direction that you want. And Harry being the only camel and not having any camel friends was particularly pissed off with the world. Three days into the expedition, he savages the, of John Horrocks, he savages the milk goats. On day five, he attacks the expedition cook, leaving two large grooves down the centre of his skull. And after about a week of exploring, John Horrocks is having breakfast and is cleaning his firearm and Harry creeps up quietly from behind and attacks. The gun goes off, Horrocks loses his hand part of his lower jaw and dies an agonising death out in the wilderness and goes down in history as the only explorer to have been fatally shot by his own camel, which is not how you want to be remembered <laughs> as, as, a, as a go-to explorer. And, of course, we have Burke and Wills, the most incompetent explorers in history. Uh, they decided in their 1860 to 61 crossing of the continent south to north there would be no native Australians, not just no Aboriginal people to serve as guides, but nobody born in Australia. So you have six Irishmen, five Englishmen, three Germans, an American and four Afghans going to walk into a bar. They weren't allowed to walk into a bar, actually, because they weren't allowed to drink on the expedition. It was organised by a predominantly German exploration committee of the, of the Philosophical Institute of Melbourne, later the Royal Society. So you have a bunch of German philosophers trying to determine whether the centre of Australia might be said to rationally exist before it's observed by a, a, a conscious mind. You'd, you'd get German uh, philosophers to do that. But to actually organise an expedition, not so much, uh, because they couldn't organise anything. On the meeting where they're signing off on papers, they find that their meeting rooms have been double booked by a children's violin lesson. And so they're there on the streets of Melbourne signing papers whilst these kids are playing chopsticks inside. And, of course, when the expedition sets off, 15,000 people, the largest crowd in Australian history, comes to see them go. The second expedition to use camels, one of the camels gets loose and attacks a woman in the crowd, breaking her leg. Everybody thought this was great theatre. Then they have 17 tonnes of luggage, including a cedar-topped oak table, a stationary cabinet, a Chinese gong, a bathtub and a mattress to be filled with water. They took a waterbed with them into the desert. The Chinese gong was to indicate mealtime on the trip, which proved to be pretty ironic at the end of it. Uh, the cart collapsed after three metres and 15,000 people wait there for four hours as they get a new cart, reload everything, repair axles. They made it as far as Essendon on day one. And, of course, they've got all of these old German men, scientists, carrying 30-kilo packs. The camels don't have to carry anything until they get to the desert but you've got all these overburdened, overweight Germans and the, the men weren't allowed to drink anything either. The rum, the 60 gallons of rum they had on the expedition was reserved for the camels. And so the camels thought, this is great. We don't have to carry anything. 
as all of these strange foreigners are carrying the gear. You all know how that story ended up. Of course, there is a darker form of forgetting. Um, and I think that this is part of the reason why we have forgotten our past. In 1996, then Prime Minister John Howard told Australians they should feel comfortable and relaxed about their past as the balance sheet of our history is one of heroic achievement. And while we have our fair share of heroic achievement, this Beck's a cuppa and a good lie down approach to our history was designed to gloss over the catastrophic impact white settlement had on Indigenous Australians. When Charles Darwin visited Van Diemen's Land, as Tasmania was then known, in 1836, he wrote, Van Diemen's Land enjoys the great advantage of being free from a native population. Within 33 years of settlement, all but a handful of Tasmania's Aboriginal people had been offshore processed to Flinders Island, with the Bass Strait solution decimating the first Tasmanians. When Truganini, then believed to be the last of her people, died in 1876, the extinction of the Tasmanians was advanced to support Darwin's theory of evolution and inspired H.G. Wells to write The War of the Worlds, in which a technologically superior race, the Martians, defeated a technologically inferior one, us. And he dedicates the first edition of that book to the first Tasmanians. Um, Frontier conflict was not confined to Tasmania and Queensland, where over 30,000 Indigenous people are believed to have been killed in the second half of the 19th century, with Indigenous people losing their lives, lands, culture and languages all over Australia. Over 100 Indigenous languages are no more, and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are fighting to preserve the 150 that remain. Now, with so many languages, it's amazing that so few Aboriginal words have been incorporated into Australian English. With yakka, the Yagara word for work, and jumbuck, an Aboriginal word for the strange new woolly things that force them off their land, being notable exceptions. We have, however, assimilated Aboriginal plant, animal, and place names. The last a policy that, uh, that was encouraged so that lost explorers could ask the locals for directions. That was pretty much it. Let's give it an Aboriginal name so we don't get lost. However, we've forgotten what most of those names mean. In 1913, we held a competition to name our new national capital, with the entries including Aryan City, and in a narrowly avoided case of grossly deceptive and misleading advertising, Climax. And if you've ever been to Canberra, you'll know that Canberra and Climax have absolutely nothing in common. Instead, we chose a word from the local Ngunnawal people, Ngambra, which we believed meant meeting place. It doesn't. It means breasts. <laughs> Australians would have to be the only people in the world who would call their national capital tits. <laughs> perhaps Australians have had, perhaps the first Australians have had the last laugh. I want you here today to go home and help Australians remember their past in all its beauty and its terror. For we can't know where we're going if we don't know where we've been. We are the sum of our stories, and in forgetting our history, we forget ourselves. Thank you very much for your time today. Oh. Hello, hello. Careful. <laughs> <laughs>
sauce, mate, later. Questions? I mean, that was fantastic. Do you think that the best way to tell our history is yep. by making it a, a series of short stories about people? I mean, having read much, much of Gert, and that's what strikes me, that, that it's, it's really lots of short stories about people that you can then sort of string together to yeah. make a history Look, of a country. The, you can teach history in all sorts of ways. I think historically, most of the people of my generation... Australian history was the thing that they found most boring at school and it was taught in a very boring way. I think it's a lot better now and I think there's a lot more truth-telling in schools today. But <coughs> any form of writing uh, or effective writing involves storytelling. Whether it's non-fiction, um, as I write or I write children's picture books as well, it's all about telling a story and people instinctively react to character and if I can find characters from Australia's history that I can hang the narrative of the nation off, that's the approach that I've chosen to take because people like stories about people rather than social movements. But you can still get the information about these broad themes in and teach history by taking that, that approach. So that, that's what I do. And if, you, if uh, you've seen horrible histories on, B, on ABC here, which is a show for kids, sketch comedy based around history, more people have got interested in history in Britain and Australia and around the world from watching that show than from anything other, any, anything else. Because it humanises it, it tells stories and it does so in a humorous way. So um, I think it's a very, very good way of communicating. And I think it's, it's sad that if you look at the top-selling historians, history writers in our country, there are no academically trained historians. There's Peter Fitzsimons with his, his red bandana, there's me with my hair falling out that I probably should be wearing a bandana as well. And I think Mike Carlton. And so those are three people who never studied history in the academy, but it's because they focus... And Thomas Keneally, because they focus on writing stories and that's something that I think people connect with. Yeah. Great question. Have you any more questions? Uh, when I uh, read Goethe, um, my initial reaction was, why didn't I learn all about this at school, and everyone who I know has read it has had the same reaction. Um, does it get into schools? Do you have much contact with Look, education? Look, I'll go and do school talks. Um, Queensland actually wanted to put it on the school curriculum, and I, I asked them not to. I, I received a um, letter from a 16-year-old Indigenous girl um, who... The second chapter of Gert is written like a right-wing radio shock jock looking at Aboriginal prehistory from, you know, a far-right perspective. Um, and it's clearly heavy on irony. Um, sometimes kids don't get irony. And this, this girl didn't get irony and wrote me this letter saying, how can you say this about my people? And, you know, I wrote back to her and we exchanged correspondence for, for, for a couple of months. So I think teachers who know their students can choose it for particular students who know will be able to sort of understand what's being done, but to apply it in a sort of broad cross-curricular way um, could, could, I think, possibly be quite damaging to some younger people who, who haven't twigged on the irony that's included in the book. Are you going to write, um, in your next book, the recent history of America? 
Well, look, that, that's a very good question. And um, I was at the St Albans Writers' Festival. I would love to write a history of America because it's great. But if I wrote in the same sort of style that I write about Australian history, which Australians like at the end of the day, I think we are able to laugh at ourselves as, as a general rule. Um, if I wrote this in America, I would, I would be tarred and feathered or shot or end up missing. Um, and I actually said this at the St Albans Writers' Festival and a very upset American lady got up and said, no, that wasn't the case and, and, um, uh, and then shouted at me for three minutes sort of proving that it probably was the case. Um, uh, uh, so, so in Goethe there are bits of American history, in True Goethe there are bits of American history and in the, the book that I'm working on, Goethe Nation, there's probably a fair bit more American history as the as the you know, American fleet pulls into Sydney Harbour and we believe that they're here to invade us and all of the anti-American paranoia. Now we, you know, we're lapdogs of America, but back in the day we thought that they were after our, our, our land and our women. They were in the, the second case, but they weren't interested in our land. <laughs> That's all we have time for. Will you please join me in thanking the wonderful David Hunt? Thank you for listening to this podcast from StoryFest 2019. Come and find us on our website at storyfest.org.au or follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at StoryFest Inc. And that's Inc. with a C. We'd like to give a huge thank you to Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting for her recording and production expertise on this podcast. <laughs>